ahead and get started. There's a lot here. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we come to you, and we just thank you for all your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for this church, Father. Thank you for this day that we have, and we're coming together, sitting around these tables, coming to celebrate your goodness that you've shown to this church and to us. Father, we also thank you for this time that you've given us to, in this place that you've given us to come together and study and learn more about you and your son. Father, you said, or Jesus, you said that where two or more are gathered in your name, you'd be here also, Lord, and we're just asking you that you would teach us this morning, that you'd clear our minds of all distractions, give us understanding, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so what, basically what we've got going on here this morning is an outline of um, chapter 8 and some notes, and you guys all have copies of that as well, or you should. If you don't have copies, there are copies on this back table, um, and there are scripture sheets back here as well. There's a lot of scripture. Uh, we'll cover a lot of it, but we may not cover all of it. So, a brief overview of where we've been so far in chapter 8. This is on Christ and his role as mediator. In uh, the first paragraph, last week with Mike, we learned that there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus, and he is our prophet, priest, and king. In 8, uh, paragraph 2, we learned that Christ has two natures. He is truly God and truly man. The Son of God took on a human nature with all the common infirmities, yet without sin. Jesus is really divine, and he is really human. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, we read in Colossians. In paragraph 3, we also learn that he is full of the Holy Spirit and that the Father called the Son to the office of mediator. And the Son was our willing mediator. And that brings us to where we're at today, paragraph 5. And I hope that we can have some discussion uh, there will be questions. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know all the answers. So you can ask questions. You may not get an answer, but you are welcome to ask questions. So, paragraph 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchase not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Wow, so there is a lot in that, right? So let's look at the Lord Jesus by his perfect obedience. So Van Dixhorn points out here in his commentary on this part of the confession, that 
there are two levels of obedience that are in view here. Christ's perfect obedience as the mediator. So as the Son of God, He honored the Father in coming to the world to save God's people. We're also talking about His perfect obedience to the law during His life. He obeyed the whole of God's law for the whole of His life. Uh, would someone read on your scripture sheet for us Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, please? So he offered himself without blemish. So his obedience was perfect. So Van Dixhorn says that, that two levels of obedience are in view in that verse, Romans 5, 19. And I'll read that for us. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So next, just after this, we see his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. So to understand this sacrifice more fully, we have to go back to the Old Testament and um, Cain and Abel. So would someone please read Genesis 4, 3 through 5 for us? So, right here, just outside of the garden, we have Cain and Abel, and we see that sacrifices have become a part of worship to God. There's an acceptable sacrifice and an unacceptable sacrifice. And then after this, throughout the, whole, the Old Testament, we see a seemingly endless cycle of sacrifices. So, uh, sure. I think that the the distinction there is was a a heart thing with the difference between um, Abel's um, sacrifice and Cain's it was not in the material, but it was within themselves, right? Okay. All right, so after this, there's a seemingly endless cycle of sacrifices to cover sins. 
In Hebrews 2, uh, Hebrews 10, 11, we read that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So Christ comes along and his sacrifice is once. Someone pre please read um, Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. We'll finish that passage. So Christ's sacrifice is once, and it was such of such a great value and merit that it only has to be offered once. So right here in the first sentence we have, I mean, just a few words, right? His perfect obedience, sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his father. So you finally made it to that semicolon there. The fully satisfied justice. <laughs> so what is justice? What would be a definition of justice? Anybody? Writing a wrong? Getting what you deserve. So justice is a legal term, right, that we use in relation to the law to one standing with the law. So for us to say that justice is satisfied would mean that someone is now in harmony with the demands of the law. So the confession here in just this brief sentence walks us through Christ's perfect obedience, his sacrifice of himself, and then we're seeing that the Father declares that justice for sins has been satisfied. So Christ is not sacrificed. He does it like we see in the Old Testament. People make sacrifices to cover their own sin. Christ, who has no sin, makes his sacrifice for us. So this is the substitutionary satisfaction view of the atonement which is foreshadowed throughout all those Old Testament sacrifices, is fulfilled by Christ's perfect sacrifice of himself. And satisfaction for God's justice is not offered, is offered not by us, but by our mediator. And this is indicated in John 19.30. Someone read that one for me, please. So when Christ said from the cross, it is finished, he indicated that the debt had been paid in full. When we read this, I always think about the hymn before the throne of God. I think about a lot of hymns when I go through this. I don't know. <laughs> um, so for God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And we sing that and that just sticks with us and that's exactly what the confession is uh, teaching us there. So what kind of obedience did Christ offer? 
perfect obedience. What did Christ sacrifice? Himself. For whom did Christ make this sacrifice? For those whom the Father gave him. That's right. That's what the uh, confession says. What did this purchase for the believer? Again, that's at the end of his... Not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know where that came from. I think that was the next part of our confession there. Paragraph 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages success, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. So here we see redemption is communicated or applied to the elect. So the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is one of promise and fulfillment. So the Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ, the Old, Test the, the Old Testament saints look forward. The New Testament saints look back on his fulfillment. Somebody please read Genesis 15, 6. So those who trust in the promises of Christ are justified by their faith. All the benefits that we derive from the work of Christ were also given to Abraham. We get that from John 8, 56. Which says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So, again, the Old Testament rituals we're pointing toward Christ and the need for a perfect redeemer. Will somebody please read Hebrews 10, 1 through 4? So who were the Old Testament saints looking forward to? Christ. That's right. They looked forward to Christ, so they put their faith in his coming, the coming seed of the woman. 
To whom did the promises and sacrifices point to in the Old Testament? Christ. They point to Christ. So what was Abraham's faith counted as? Righteousness. Absolutely. So all, all the benefits of Christ's death it happened once in the timeline, in our reality, not in some anywhere else, in some heavenly sphere, right? Happened once in our reality, but all the benefits are communicated to the elect throughout all ages. Right. To point that out again while we're going through this, because it answers these questions that we have all the time and gives us the resource to point others to Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so apparently something happened in our taking this from Apple to Windows. Yeah, I know. Seventh paragraph. I'll read it for us. It's in your hymnal as well, or on your sheet there. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So that's... that's confusing, right? Clear as mud. So the one thing that we always have to remember when we're, the confession here is really teaching us about biblical language, and we'll get to that, but what we have to remember is that there's a person who saves us. It's Christ that saves us, not his human nature, nor is it his divine nature, but Christ himself acting according to both natures. It's important to remember that Christ is one person forevermore with two natures, and he remains as a whole person, our mediator. So knowing that, we can move on to the communication of attributes, which you'll have <laughs> be able to read all of it down here on your uh, handouts. So once again, we have to look back, refer back to um, paragraph 2 of the natures of Christ and we read that he has two whole perfect and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood they were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion composition or confusion so what is true of either nature can be attributed to the person of Christ however what what is true of one nature may not be said of the other nature. So what the confession has here is the whole person of Christ in view. And we see that when we come to the biblical language. So sometimes in Scripture, the human nature of Christ is referenced by way 
of a divine attribute. Would someone please read Acts 20, 28. I think we'll see this a little better illustrated in the scripture here. So, we're pointing to the person of Christ here in this scripture, even though, if I can find it here, it says, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, does God have blood? No. Jesus has blood. Or, the opposite can be true, the divine nature by way of a human attribute. Um, we can look at John 3.13 there. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, obviously we're talking about Christ, the person of Christ. Because no man has ascended and descended from heaven. No mere man. So by which nature does Christ act in his work of mediation? Both natures. In scripture is the person of Christ referenced by his divine nature? The answer would be yes. In scripture is the humanity of Christ sometimes expressed using divine categories? Okay, so I know that one, that's a little confusing, right, to all of us. Um, do you guys have any questions about that? So just always remember when we come across those passages that we're talking about the person who is Christ. Right. Atonement. The atonement 
not only made salvation possible for the sinner, but actually secures it. God does not simply hope that what he has done will be applied to his people. He makes sure that his work is effectively communicated to each child of God. If someone would please read John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, and then we'll jump to 27 and 28 to illustrate this. Please, 27 and 28. So Christ's work is effective. Complete and effective. Yes. We also... Read in this portion. If I can pull mine back up here. That Christ is making intercession for us and revealing the mysteries of salvation to us. So in John 17, 9, we read that Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Christ prays for us, for those whom the Father has given him. And in John 15, 15, we read the words of Christ. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So Christ makes known to us. He reveals the mysteries of salvation to us. We also learn in this paragraph that <clears throat> he effectually persuades us by his spirit to believe and obey and governs our hearts by his word and spirit. So it's important to see that both Christ and his Holy Spirit work on and in us by the word. And we should make it our ambition as Christians to be spirit-filled through a life immersed in the scriptures. Christ has overcome all our enemies. Um, Someone please read 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. Awesome. Who effectually applies salvation to the elect? Who effectually does it? Christ, Jesus, that's right. So how are the mysteries, how are they, the mysteries of salvation revealed? 
They're revealed by Christ in and by the Word and His Spirit. Who effectually persuades us to believe and obey? The Spirit. Right, guys, so there's some extra stuff in the back of your notes. So we just went through the doctrine of limited atonement. <clears throat> um, Sproul calls it definite atonement. Christ's work is effective. So that's for this is straight off of Ligonier Ministries page. You, I did a search for limited atonement. I think it was actually the very first thing that came up. So I copied that there for you guys. Um, and also um, through Louis Burkhoff's um, systematic theology book, there's justification, justification and sanctification. So those two things are explained there. Any comments, questions? Thank you, guys. No. <laughs> All right, well, let me pray for us if there's nothing. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to be our mediator. Thank you for his perfect obedience. Thank you for all the benefits that we've received from his work. Father, we ask that you would Fill us with your spirit that we would be purified and made holy. Father, thank you for each and every one of these that are here today. We ask for your blessings on our worship this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.